Welcome to the RE Human Layer Security Podcast, the show that flips the script on cybersecurity. I'm Tim Sadler, the CEO and co-founder of Tessian, and in each episode, I'll be interviewing IT and business leaders about why we need to protect people, not just machines and data, to stop breaches and empower businesses to achieve their missions. Hi, everybody. This week, I'm joined by Joe Nocera, a partner in PwC's technology consulting practice and leader of the cybersecurity practice as part of PwC's financial crimes unit. With a passion for understanding the technical challenges of security and translating these into practical business solutions, Joe has assisted a number of organizations in building security departments, information risk management functions, and overall IT governance functions. And he's also been involved in helping businesses in their cybercrime investigations. Joe, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Tim. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Joe, to kick things off, it'd be great if you could explain a little bit about your role at PwC and the kinds of things you're helping businesses with. Sure. In addition to the role that you described in the introduction, uh, one of the key things that I do is I lead our Cyber and Privacy Innovation Institute. And that's really uh, the place within PwC where we're really researching uh, the key trends in the market, uh, the threat landscape, and then what our clients are, are doing about that. And so uh, in that role, I spend a lot of time talking to clients. I spend a lot of time talking to technology companies. I spend a lot of time talking to various uh, threat intelligence analysts in the industry, really trying to learn what state of the art is and trying to, to bring that thinking to our clients. Um, maybe the other thing that's relevant is just from a client uh, perspective, uh, I do focus mostly in the financial services, financial crime space. Uh, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of cybercrime investigations, which certainly helps me learn from the mistakes of the past and also work really proactively with companies, uh, helping them uh, get ready for attacks, build strategies, uh, and actually engage with the boards. Uh, you know, more and more, this has been a topic that's been on the board agenda and so I do a lot of our board briefings, uh, just helping boards understand the threat and then also think about the way that they uh, exercise their fiduciary responsibility in overseeing management. And I was going to double click on that point about people coming to you for help with uh, emerging threats. What are, would you say, the kind of top three things that your clients are coming to you with uh, in 2022? Sure. Well, I don't know if it's an emerging set, threat, but certainly top of mind still continues to be ransomware. If we just look at the, uh, the 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 volume of attacks and the type of disruption that happens, you know, clients are are very concerned about making sure that they're ready, uh, doing what they can to prevent those types of attacks, uh, potentially limit the damage uh, if an attack does occur, and be ready to recover in that kind of worst case scenario. And so, I think that definitely continues to be top of mind. Uh, the second topic that we really see is understanding um, really the change in the hybrid workforce. Uh, you know, what was originally a temporary setup of remote work uh, is now becoming very much the new normal. Uh, that's changed both the technology that employees are using, the way that customers are interacting uh, with what used to be maybe a brick and mortar uh, commerce experience to more of a digital commerce experience. Um, it makes it more difficult to do things like fraud detection and threat hunting and the like. And so clients are very much trying to think about what is the security architecture and model look like in this new new uh, hybrid world that we live in that's the new normal. And then lastly, it's really around digital transformation to the cloud, right? As organizations continue to accelerate uh, some of that transformation, probably as a result of the, the pandemic changes that I talked about as point two, uh, they really want to both uh, make sure that they're securing 
the capabilities that they have in the cloud, but also make sure that they're taking advantage of some of the security capabilities that the cloud provides as well. And again, wanting to go deeper on the point you mentioned about hybrid work, it seems that this is all anyone has been talking about and trying to wrap their heads around over the past two years. What's your perspective on hybrid work from a security angle? Do you think it helps make organizations more secure or less secure? Well, <laughs> you know, like like almost anything you could ask me about in security, there are probably benefits and there are potential drawbacks that have to be managed. Um, you know, I'll start maybe with the drawbacks because that's what first jumps out to people. Uh, you know, certainly um, you're seeing less of the network traffic than you would have uh, on an on-prem scenario uh, with virtual private networking and the like and split tunneling. You're likely uh, having some activity that's happening that you no longer have visibility to. In some organizations, um, you know, they're coming in over unmanaged devices and they're using, um, you know, perhaps a, a virtual machine. And so that creates uh, some visibility challenges and risks. And then some of the physical security controls that you might have had in place uh, are no longer relevant. And so you have to worry about things like, um, you know, screen prints and physical security and, 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 and screen timeouts and the like. And so those are some of the challenges. I think you also have some challenges that relates to the productiveness and the effectiveness of your security operations teams. Uh, they used to be, you know, physically located in the same operation center and the collaboration and discussion that happened was much more natural. Now that has to be more intentional in a remote scenario. But there are definitely some benefits. Um, as you think about securing um, this new hybrid model and these endpoints that are perhaps not as controlled, it's actually moved organizations closer to some of the zero trust principles that we've talked about uh, already. And, and, and what I mean by that is uh, because I may not trust the device as much, because I may not trust the security of the network connection as much, I enforce a lot more security on the session itself uh, via virtual private networking, via micro-segmentation, via uh, a virtual uh, machine, perhaps. Uh, and that provides me additional control that I didn't have before. And it ultimately gets me probably further along on that zero trust journey that many people were on before the pandemic. I think also turning to people, as much as there were some downsides in the way the security teams were operating remotely, one of the things I've seen is it's opened up the, the talent uh, pool to uh, you know be geographically unbounded. And so I think about one client that I work with, it's uh, in a fairly uh, limited labor market as it relates to their supply for security professionals. Uh, many of the key hires they've made in the last 12 months, you know, live in other cities and probably would not have considered a position with this company or more importantly, this company might not have been willing to hire those remote workers 12 months ago uh, as they are today. And so it's really helped them add to the, the talent that they have on their cybersecurity team. I think there are two very good points there with the accelerant towards just better cyber practices in general, certainly with zero trust. And we've seen that across you know, the many organizations we work with, but also people we've had on the podcast. And then your point about talent, I think, is such a good one and you know, probably isn't spoken about enough, which is there is such a shortage of cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity experts, cybersecurity people, and opening up so that you are um, if you are a hybrid uh, security team or you have a hybrid SOC, I think that's a great thing. 
And as you know, this podcast is all about the human factor of cybersecurity because the majority of data breaches are being caused by some form of human error. I wanted to ask your opinion on why so many breaches are a result of the human element and you know, what can organizations do to help bolster security when it comes to keeping their people safe, but also educated about risks? Sure. You know, I think it starts back to, you know, any, any system is, is vulnerable at its weakest point. And unfortunately, in many cases, our, our users uh, are potentially our weakest point. And when I think about that human vulnerability, I would really break it down into, you know, maybe three perspectives. Uh, the general user, which I'll touch on in a second, what I would think about is power users, people that have certain privileges within our environment, uh, and then lastly, I would think about the insider threat, more of that intentional uh, uh, human element of somebody that's trying to do us harm. And so if I start with a general user, uh, that's really where user awareness comes in. If we think about the types of attacks that would target a general user, that might be something like a phishing attack. It might be something like a malicious USB drive. It could be malicious software that gets downloaded. Uh, it could even be something as simple as an accidental uh, uh, mailing where I was trying to send one client's data. Uh, in an email attachment, and perhaps I attached the wrong file, or perhaps I, I, I picked the wrong email address. And so all those types of things tend to be unintentional user mistakes, uh, where somebody has either tricked the user into doing something that ultimately is bad, or somebody has um, um, has just done something that accidentally wrong. And so if I think about, you know, what do, um, what do companies do about that? Certainly, there's more we can do with awareness and training. I think um, you can probably never do enough of that. But what I would tell you is that you're never going to get that click rate down, <laughs> that mistake rate down to zero. And so designing a security model that would simply rely on user awareness training and education as your primary control to protect users uh, is probably insufficient. You know, Even the best organizations I have that have really focused on phishing awareness probably get that click rate down to one or 2%. But if I've got you know, 10,000, 20,000 employees, that's still a decent number of employees that are going to click on a link they shouldn't click on. And so you really have to design a model that hopefully uh, detects uh, and prevents those links from getting to users to begin with, uh, to give you an alert when, when something actually happens and allow you to very quickly take action around it. And so I always talk about that assumed state of compromise, uh, assume that your users have an irresistible urge to click on that link and design a model that actually gives you some degree of protection when that actually happens. The other aspect of this, I think, gets to incident reporting uh, and making sure that users feel comfortable uh, after the fact of letting you know when they maybe made a mistake. Uh, we all uh, have probably you know, accidentally clicked on something we shouldn't have clicked on or opened a link that in hindsight after we saw what happened said, oh, well, but that doesn't feel right. What's really important is that users feel like they, one, know who to call, and secondly, they're not going to get punished for actually uh, reporting what occurred. And so I would invest uh, some time in that incident reporting process and making sure that folks feel, feel good about that. Uh, as I think about power users, I really think about the type of harm that power users could do from a couple of perspectives. One is that accidental misconfiguration. I maybe configure an S3 bucket inappropriately and it ends up wide open to the internet, or perhaps um, I uh, uh, misconfigure a system such that a port is open on a firewall that wasn't to be expected or something like that. And so there's just mistakes that we might make. And then secondarily, I see power users sometimes taking shortcuts. Uh, they're trying to get something done quickly. They're trying to get something done 
uh, uh, maybe they're troubleshooting a production problem, and they sometimes bypass a security control in order to get to their objectives with less friction. And so as I think about what do we do to address the types of risks that power users create, it's really about automating those controls in such a way that those misconfigurations are harder to, to harder to occur, harder to get into production because we are either auto-changing the configuration to be more secure or giving very much real-time alerts when those misconfigurations pop up. The second thing that automation really does is it provides the shortcut. <laughs> you know, if the fastest path to production is using a secure automat- automation, then I have less incentive to bypass that control because I know the fastest way I can get the job done is using the automation. And so really thinking about that power user persona and trying to make their job as easy and as foolproof as possible is really the second piece. And then the third piece really deals, as I said, with the insider threat, particularly in this hybrid work environment that we talked about, uh, the types of things that we could do to potentially monitor for fraud and employee misconduct is a little bit different. And so it's really important that we understand um, both the inherent risk that certain employees uh, have within our environment based upon perhaps the, the privileges that they have or perhaps um, um, you know their, their, their specific situations as it relates to perhaps their, their financial condition or perhaps their, their satisfaction with their job uh, with our ability to then detect anomalous behavior, the ability to say, uh, you know, they're accessing systems at a time that's outside of work hours. They're, uh, you know, they're talking to uh, servers or workstations that they don't have a valid business reason to talk to, or they're perhaps downloading or accessing a volume of data that nobody else accesses, right? And so all of those types of techniques allow us to have visibility into which employees might require heightened monitoring and learning and ultimately hopefully prevent uh, that insider attack from occurring. And so those kind of the three ways I think about the human threat. And there are external factors as well, I guess, that play into all of this. Um, you know, not just the uh, the rank of the employee in terms of, you know, are they, um, are they a general user or a power user or, you know, a user that poses inside threat. But we did some research with Stanford University, and a lot of the reasons why people said they clicked on phishing emails or made a mistake that compromised security was because they were tired, stressed, or distracted at work. To what extent do you think this is becoming more or less of a problem, certainly with the rise of hybrid work? I, I, well, no, no question. Even speaking for myself, our, the amount of screen time that, that we've had over the last two years has certainly you know doubled, maybe tripped. Uh, tripled. And so uh, that certainly um, probably creates some fatigue uh, and causes folks to 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 perhaps uh, you know miss something they would have caught in a normal environment. The other thing I think that's happened is the proliferation of social media and all the different platforms that we can message each other on. There's more and more of an opportunity to click, <laughs> frankly. And uh, we're seeing you know phishing attacks and other types of social engineering attacks really leverage the social media platforms as well. And so it's not just about, you know, protecting your users via their corporate email. It's having some type of approach that, you know, allows them to secure their various social media platforms. Because it's, I just think about the size of my phone versus the size of my desktop monitor, right? The the screen itself is smaller. And so if there's a a malicious link that's in a social media thing on my phone, it's going to be even harder for me to spot that. And so I think that's another important area of both awareness and control that we need to think about. And you mentioned the 
the challenge that a lot of organizations have is they are basically their strategy for dealing with the human risk with insecurity is relying on people to do the right thing 100% of the time or simply relying on training them, you know, to filter things like phishing emails, et cetera. Um, do you think that this is the major thing that's being overlooked with regard to the human factor in cybersecurity? What other things would you add to that list if there are any? Yeah, I, I, I think that is one thing that's overlooked. There's an over-dependence on that awareness control. And I'd like to see more layered, uh, uh, more of a layered approach to that because we know that we'll never be 100% perfect there. I do think there are a couple other areas uh, that are overlooked. Uh, one area I think is just the, the prioritization of management's attention, right? There's only so much management attention on any one topic uh, that can be be provided. And that's frankly a, a fixed quantity over the course of the year, regardless of what the financial budget is. And so how do we focus the rest of the leadership's team on the most important cyber issues and the things that we need to change as an organization to become a hardened target and a more resilient organization? And so I think there's an element that sometimes overlooked. You know, CISOs are very quick to, they have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of data. And they want to share that as much as possible. I think there's a risk of information overload with the rest of the C-suite. And it's really important that we focus them in on the two or three behaviors that they could change as a leader that would change the culture and the operating model of the company to be more secure. The final point that I would focus in on, and I get back to the the own internal talent, uh, is the people challenge that I wrote about in my LinkedIn article that I think I referenced uh, uh, your work is defender fatigue. You know, this is a profession that feels like it's been on a series of sprints for the last 18 months from securing remote work to responding to supply chain attacks, to dealing with patch Tuesdays, to dealing with ransomware, to dealing with log4j. Um, Every time a a defender (laughs) looks up, it's like a new problem to have. And it seems to happen over a holiday weekend or, you know, some other, uh, some other, you know, good time where we'd like to be out with our family and friends. And so I do think we have to look after our teams, make sure that they feel appreciation, make sure that we have adequate staffing so that they get a chance to unplug because we tend to make mistakes as defenders when we're tired as well. And so being fresh as a defender, I think ultimately helps us be better defenders. Yeah, this concept of security burnout is something we hear a lot about. And we also talk about internally as a company with regard to our teams. Um, what do you typically advise your clients on here? How can they uh, how can they kind of separate signal from the noise in terms of insecurity? The sky is always falling. There's always something wrong. There's always something. Uh, there's always something bad. And if you're large enough, you're always under attack. So, how do you encourage your clients and those management teams to really focus on what's important, or t- or get confidence in turning down the noise of of those other things that maybe cause more harm than good? So I think there's, again, probably three dimensions of that question that I would think about. Uh, one is capacity, right? Have we have we created a sufficiently large enough team that we can st- staff that crisis in more of a steady state? Because what we've learned over time is that there's always going to be some crisis. And if we have just enough people to do BAU work and not, and then we're redirecting them every time a crisis occurs, it seems like we're playing whiplash. And so I do think there's an element of taking a hard look at our staffing and making sure we get adequate coverage so that people can kind of rotate in and out of the crisis. The second piece of that, I think, is also uh, simplification of our environment wherever possible, uh, looking at 
both the number of technologies we're trying to secure and the number of versions of those technologies, the simpler and more consolidated that environment is, the easier it is to manage and focus in on. And then even from a security tooling perspective, right? Um, you know, having a, a more unified tool set, fewer windows and screens that I'm looking at monitoring, uh, that really helps me hopefully uh, be more efficient with the resources I have. And then lastly, you kind of you kind of touched on it and you led with it is, I think it's a focus really on what's important and what has to get done right now. And so if I go back to even something as recent as Log4j, certainly we had Log4j all over our environment. Uh, and, and we're trying to think about how do we talk to clients about what has to get done maybe before the holiday or before New Year's and what could potentially wait. And it's really understanding your environment, understanding where that technology was within your environment and where was it most vulnerable uh, whether that was because it was um, externally facing and could be exploited, or perhaps it was receiving input from an externally facing uh, system, uh, and where could it do mo the most damage? And so, not just focusing on external systems, but also looking at those internal systems that either you know process critical business transactions or perhaps gave uh, privileged access to the environment. And so, that takes a lot of, I'd say, upfront work to, to understand your inventory, to understand your criticality. But what it allows you to do if you've made that investment is it allows you to really focus those precious resources, particularly in the crisis moment, on that subset of activities that are most at risk and make the biggest difference for the environment. And the way that organizations can evaluate risk in your mind is this just kind of a simple probability impact matrix, like you're ranking the likelihood of something happening and then the impact if it does happen? Or do you have another framework for thinking about this? Well, I think in its simplest sense, there's a comp there's certainly that, right? So so it, it's likelihood and an impact. I think one of the things that we get stuck on a little bit as professionals is understanding that likelihood uh, and, and, and giving a fair calculation around that. I think we have a much better sense of impact uh, but the other piece of this that I think we, we've disconnected from the equation that we need to bring back in is how do the controls that we have in place today reduce that probability of something happening or potentially mitigate the impact of what is happening? And so we, we, we tend to focus, I think, more on the inherent risk of, of what's occurring versus the residual risk uh, of how our control landscape fits into there. The other thing that I think we struggle with a bit is how does an incremental dollar of spend uh, or control really affect that probability or impact statement. And so that's one of the areas, if you think about something like the FAIR methodology for risk quantification, that clients, I think, are still in the, the early days of adopting and really trying to make part of the way they make decisions going forward. That's a really good point. And I'm sure you get this question all the time from your clients, but Seemingly, security budgets just keep on rising, but so does the threat landscape and so does the number of breaches. So how are you helping them make sense of that incremental dollar of spend and impacting probability? I guess, where, where are we today in terms of understanding the ROI from security technology and where would you like to see it evolve to over the coming years? Yeah, I, you know, I think we're still at a, at a phase where it's very hard to take a mathematical approach and be precise and say, you know, if I spend $10 million in security control, I'm going to realize, you know, $13 million of expected annualized loss benefit type, type scenario. What I do think we can get into is the relative benefit and improvement 
uh, in choice A versus choice B. And when I work with clients a lot, um, you know, 80% of their strategies are probably the same. There's some basic blocking and tackling cyber hygiene that everybody's trying to tackle that is fairly non-controversial that probably should be part of your budget. Really focusing in on the margins, the, that last 20% of your cybersecurity plan for the year or the quarter, what's in that? Uh, and you know what didn't make the cut? What is the, the next 10 or 20% that you might've put in, 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 into the plan? And thinking through the relative benefit on kind of you know, some type of relative basis of, of kind of, you know, A versus Z in that list on the margin is really important. And then talking through it with the rest of the management team to really understand, I would say, the risk that you've accepted inherently by not funding certain projects and funding others. The last thing I would say, and it gets back to the people aspect that we were touch, t- touching on, is it's rarely anymore an issue of lack of funding. Uh, it really becomes an issue of the organization's capacity to take on more work. Uh, people are willing to put pretty much any funding <laughs> towards cybersecurity that they can to make sure that they're not the next news story that occurs. So the, the the governor ends up being, what else is going on in the organization? What type of strategic changes are we making? And how do we have the capacity as an organization to do all this security stuff in a way that doesn't slow us down? or impact the other business objectives that we have. And lastly, Joe, you've spoken about trust quite a lot. Um, I think you previously mentioned that trust adds another dimension to the human side of cyber in that customers and clients are trusting businesses with their information. So what can businesses do to maintain levels of trust in 2022 and beyond? Yeah, I, I think it's about thinking about all of the stakeholders that you have as a business. And thinking about what does trust mean for them? So if I think about those stakeholders, certainly customer is a stakeholder, and I'll get to that. Um, your investors are stakeholders. Your board hopefully represents some of those stakeholders. Uh, you may have a regulator that has a certain expectation for what ethical business conduct and security and privacy looks like. Uh, certainly legislatures are starting to take an interest in you know regulating security and privacy uh, to provide consumers with a protection. And then lastly, your employees trust you, uh, both to protect their information as an employee, but to make sure they have a job and that the business is available for them going forward as as an employee. So I would really encourage organizations to think about all of those stakeholders. What's the value exchange that each of those stakeholders have? What do they expect you to do? What have you communicated to them as your standard of practice? And then are you living up to that standard of practice each and every day? And, and, and look, trust isn't about never making a mistake. It's about, you know, the transparency to own the mistakes that you make uh, and to, to get better over time to make sure that you don't make the same mistake twice. And so that's really how we think about trust across all those stakeholder dimensions. Joe, thank you so much. It's been great to have you on the show. We appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Thanks, Tim. It's been great talking to you as well. With every guest, we love to finish up with some quick fire questions to get to know the humans on the Human Layer Security podcast a little bit better. So I wondered if I could ask you, Joe, what's your favorite city in the world? Hong Kong. And you didn't say Chicago. And is that because of the winter? Uh, you know, I probably take it for granted. I mean, to the point earlier that we were talking before the show started, 
Um, it's amazing in the summer. The lake is fantastic. I actually like a lot of things about the winter. I love the sports, but, uh, you know, I, it's just, just part of my DNA. You know, it's like, it's like the oxygen in the air. You kind of forget that you're even breathing in at some point. What's the best book you've ever read? It's a great question. Um, it's probably a mix of books. So I really uh, read Built to Last a number of years ago when I was first starting out my career from a business perspective, which really looked at um, a number of um, you know businesses and what made them successful. And that really shaped some of my early thinking career about what, what a good business looked like and how do you lead them. But at the same time, um, you know, I remember reading a book when I was probably 16 or 17 year old uh, from Lou Holtz, the, the college football coach, uh, who talked about his leadership style. And, and, and really, that had an impact on me. There was a specific story that he talked about around um, really um, protecting your name, uh, your reputation, um, that uh, uh, character is what you do when no one is looking, uh, and that once you've impacted uh, your name, you can really never get it back. And so, uh, that had an uh, impact on my own kind of moral compass and kind of the way that I think about the way I lead others. I really love that point. Character is what you do when nobody's looking. It comes back to your point about trust earlier as well, in terms of trust being uh, not that you will have no mistakes or no security issues, but it's actually how you handle them and share them transparently with your customers and stakeholders. Final question from me to you, Joe, is what's the app you can't live without? app I can't live without. I'm trying to think about that. Um, <laughs> boy, there's so many. Um, I spend a lot of time right now, uh, I guess, uh, the crypto market, believe it or not, I'm, I'm a bit of a cryptocurrency fanatic. And so um, any, I have probably so many apps on my phone that, that deal with cryptocurrency that, that I, I'm using quite frequently. And then I also really enjoy Flipboard, which you, you may have on your iPad. It's a, a news ad, a, aggregator that I think just does a great job of uh, curating the news feeds that I read on a regular basis. Yeah, I love Flipboard. Joe, thank you again. It's been great to have you on the show. We really appreciate you taking time. Thanks for having me, Tim. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more Human Layer Security Insights in our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, you can visit our blog at tessian.com forward slash blog, where you'll find lots of amazing content, advice, and tips. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.